This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honours the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. I'm Stephen Portia. My name is Andrew Carroll. And today we are talking about possibly the greatest character actor of all time, the potential GOAT, John Malkovich. Andrew, run down his history. John Malkovich was born in Christopher, Illinois in 1953. He studied theatre at Illinois State University before dropping out to study acting at the William Esper Studio in New York. For much of his early career, he acted in and directed theatre productions with the Steppenwolf Theatre Company in Chicago. His first noteworthy role came in the 1984 melodrama Places in the Heart, for which he received a supporting actor an Oscar nomination. In the same year, he played photojournalist Al Rokoff in The Killing Fields. In 1987, John Malkovich starred in three films, with Empire of the Sun being the largest production in which Malkovich played Basie, an American smuggler in Japanese-occupied China. Malkovich would continue to alternate between more highbrow cultured fare in the 1990s, while also dipping his toes into the excess of blockbuster cinema in that era. For instance, within a year, he appeared in his friend Gary Sinise's adaptation of John Steinbeck's classic Of Mice and Men, and in Wolfgang Peterson's In the Line of Fire, for which he was nominated for a second Best Supporting Actor Oscar. Malkovich's unique pouting face and whispery voice have been put to great use in various period dramas such as Dangerous Liaisons, Mary Riley, The Portrait of a Lady and The Man in the Iron Mask. Later in the 90s, John Malkovich would make two of his most out-there films playing Cyrus the Virus in Con Air and a version of himself in Being John Malkovich. Yeah, I rank Malkovich up there with Christopher Walken, Willem Dafoe, Viola Davis as top four working character actors today. Um, I think what makes those four really special is that they all have qualities that make them totally distinct from any other person alive Mm. while at the same time somehow managing to disappear into every role that they take on and um, with Malkovich what I think makes him unique is his wonderfully soft mellow voice which makes him read on screen as very elegant and intelligent but at the same time he has this grave serious face with these like pursed lips Uh, he's six foot which also makes him incredibly commanding and imposing and I, I think between the two he can play sort of anything like from romantic sympathetic heroes to menacing sadistic villains to people somewhere in between and he can show up for five minutes and just change the temperature of a movie and uh he's also got this dry humor which i think makes him very good too in comedies like you know burn after reading or john malkovich or even the uh, space force on netflix and i found a good quote from him which sort of works in describing his character actor status where he says in movies you're a product and if i'm a product i'm a tabasco sauce i'm not a sh- sort of shepherd's pie and that's the way it is Nice. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Tabasco sauce. I also like Shepherd's Pie. I think what I find most interesting about John Malkovich is that he um, doesn't consider himself a method actor, which kind of contrasts with how, like, you know, how dry he is in a lot of interviews. Like, there's one interview on the Graham North show where he's just talking about his first, first and only time at the Oscars. The ceremony involved a parade of elephants going through uh, the Kodiak Theatre and just people following behind the elephants, just shoveling their shit off the carpet, <laughs> which I thought was a very funny story. But it's, I think it's obvious in how he chooses his roles that he sees acting as of all kinds, whether it's horror or comedy, as an art form, regardless of the material, and is as eager to throw himself into comedy or horror as he is to like high drama or a biopic. And I think like you know that's most obvious in maybe being John Malkovich, or more, more maybe more obviously um, Burn After Reading, where you know it's he's kind of a parody of himself in that as well. You know where he says memoir <laughs> all over, over and over again. 
True. And we're this episode we're because he's one of the best, we're gonna split it up into two yeah. similar to our Womb Defoe episode. So Burn After Reading will probably hit on our well, I'm definitely gonna watch it for the, the second yeah, episode. Yeah. But today is uh eighties and nineties stuff. Yeah. And uh, just yeah, just on being John Malkovich, which we're gonna talk about later, um it's just sort of a mark on how good he is that uh he had a movie named after him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't believe I'll say that that any character actor has had that happen to them. You're probably right, yeah. Um, do you want to talk about the Killing Fields, which is sort of his big break, I think, right? In yeah, cinema, at yeah, least. A big break, very small role though. Um, mm. He plays Al Rokoff, a photojournalist covering the war in Cambodia, with journalist Sidney Shanberg, who's played by Sam Waterstone, who's famous for being the father of Catherine Waterstone, and their Cambodian interpreter Dith Pran, who's played by Hang S. Noor, who they attempt to help flee the war-torn country. Just to compare and contrast the two. Um, journalists in, in the film, one of whom is Sidney, played by John Waterstone, uh, or Sam Waterstone, and the other who's Al, played by John Malkovich. And Sidney comes across as a bit of an arrogant, kind of unaware, grand, grandstanding idiot for the first bit of the movie, uh, as many journalists were and have been since Watergate. Cause that's You're looking the, at one. Yeah, I know. That's the only thing you've got going for you, Stephen. Wait, still waiting on that big scoop. Whereas Al comes across, comes across as more of a pragmatic professional who's like willing to run through fire and over bodies to get his shot. Like This is a movie in which the Cambodian government who are sort of kind of assisted not very well by the US uh, military lose the uh, lose their war against the Khmer Rouge in a Coca-Cola bottling plant which uh, says it all really there's a moment where not a moment as a full sequence where um, Dith Pran negotiates entirely in uns- unsubtitled Cambodian I think it doesn't have subtitles anyway my version didn't for Sydney Allen Sunday Times reporter John Swain's release and you feel that confusion and tension all the way through that five minute sequence. But the way he gets them out of that near execution situation is by bribing the Khmer Rouge with a stack of Coca-Cola crates, just bottles of Coke. That's what, that's what gets them out, which uh, which really says it all. It says that, you know, about the American capitalist system trying to aid countries again in their fight against communism. And it says how bad a lot of those communist systems that were afterwards, which I think is pretty smart. It's an odd film because it, fe- it feels like this movie is kind of irritated at having to include anyone else other than Sydney and Dith because everyone, everyone else seems like kind of like just bolted on to the movie you know Craig T. Nelson is there as the army commander and he's literally in the first I don't know maybe 20 minutes and John Malkovich is there and he's but he's like he's always away somewhere he's always like on another assignment taking photos whatever, or whatever he's, very, he's rarely uh, in the same room as Sydney or Dith um, and rarely are the three of them ever together, other than when they're captured, or whether in the French uh, embassy, uh, where all the all the Westerners are essentially hiding out from the Khmer Rouge. So it, yeah, a lot of just a lot of other characters just feel bolted on to this story about Sydney and Dith. Like it's not a very showy performance for Malkovich. Like even like his his big scene is him um, basically creating a passport for Dith so that they can like basically smuggling them out of the country. He's already gotten his family out, but he chooses to stay and uh, help Sydney with filing stories and interpreting and getting him out of sticky situations, which he does very well. Um, and this is a true story, it should be noted, by the way. And, like, they fail and Dith is, like, has to leave the embassy and is, you know, eventually put in a work camp where he survives for four years or something. He survived for four years or something by pretending to be stupid by... Uh, I think he just pretending to be like a village idiot that was captured or something. And then like there's a scene later on where um, Al confronts Sydney when he win when Sydney wins his Pulitzer Prize. And um, he's like giving out to him in the bathroom and he's saying like he took advantage of Dith, which in fairness, he kind of did. But even then, it's not it's not like a showy moment for Malkovich. It's just kind of um, something he's just there 
it's like like any other character like John Swain who's played by Julian Sands or um, Craig T. Nelson they're just there to move the plot along to move mm. this story of brotherhood and all that but then again the ending is really beautiful like where after an, the last hour of the film is basically the great escape but pure fucking misery of this man like crawling through fields full of skeletons and like forced to like just be incredibly stupid and like babysit like the commander's son and then at the end he escapes and meets um meets Sydney in a refugee camp in a Red Cross camp uh, a couple of years later and he's just like and Sydney is like breaks down crying and asks begs for his forgiveness and he's like nothing to forgive Sydney which is real a great capstone to a movie that uh feels a like a very heavy-handed like there's one point where a woman like is uh they're saying they're kicking all the Cambodians out of the French embassy and a woman literally runs into her husband's arms screaming, no! But it, do, it does work. It works. Yeah. And yeah. it won a bunch of Oscars, didn't it? Uh, your man, Hang S. Noor, is the on- second only person to win Best Supporting Actor. He's the second only non-professional person to win Best Supporting Actor. Yeah. yeah. And he's deserved. He's really good in it. I should check it out. The only reason I didn't was because I heard John Malkovich's role was quite small. Yeah. And it it seemed um, a bit of a tough hang. It is a bit of a tough hang. It's, it's quite long as well. So, yeah, yeah I understand. But, but uh, uh, yeah, it's no. streaming on Prime Video. Um, we move on to um, I know, something a little bit more saucy. Uh, Dangerous Asians. Sure. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. Do you have the pot there? Let's get French. Yeah. One yeah. second. Ooh la la. Mais oui, mais oui. John Malkovich plays the Vicomte Sébastien de Valmont, a French nobleman in pre-revolution France who, as part of a game with the equally amoral and roguish Marquis Isabella de Meutour, who's played by Glenn Close, seduces both the devout Madame Marie de Tourville, um, who's played by Michelle Pfeiffer, and the virginal Cécile de Valange, who's played by Uma Thurman. Uh, these liaisons ultimately prove dangerous for both parties. I don't care what anyone thinks of my French. It's really just there to give Charlene a chuckle when she's editing this. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, I don't care what people say about my French. It's good. <laughs> my aunt is not on her own just at the moment. She has a young friend staying with her. A Madame de Torvel. You can't mean it. To seduce a woman famous for strict morals, religious fervor, and the happiness of her marriage. What could possibly be more prestigious? I think there's something degrading about having a husband for a rival. It's humiliating if you fail and commonplace if you succeed. Where is Monsieur de Torvel, anyway? Presiding over some endless case in Burgundy. I don't think you can hope for any actual pleasure. Oh, yes. You see... I have no intention of breaking down her prejudices. I want her to believe in God and virtue and the sanctity of marriage and still not be able to stop herself. I really enjoyed this. Uh, I'd never seen it. And I'm more of a genre film person, so typically costume dramas about high society based on classical literature aren't aren't really my go-to movies, but I tend to prefer them if they're doing something sort of interesting with or subverting what you typically see depicted in these movies, which is sort of a backwards stuffy repressed society and um, Mm. I'll say this about Dangerous Liaisons uh, probably because it was made in the 80s the age of excess Mm. nothing repressed about the society it depicts no 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 no. (laughs) oh boy Mm. Um, this movie is literally just about shagging yeah yeah to the extent that I had to google at one point, if Malkovich's actual profession was to have sex, <laughs> um, which is silly because he, he's referred to as a Viscount. Mm. So he's a delicious mint biscuit. <laughs> um, he's like a, <laughs> he's a noble. And yeah, there's just so little focus on his duties as a Viscount. Mm. 
and so much focus on his sexual escapades. He, like, he talks about sex as a career. When Glencoe tries to recruit him to have sex with her ex's new Virginia young girlfriend, played by Uma Thurman, he's like, mm, too easy. I have my reputation, I think. Oh. <laughs> Instead, I'm going to seduce this deeply devout religious lady, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, into having sex with me and then break her heart just to prove I can. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just this horny, decadent narcissist. And I think you had a good read on it, saying that the character of Almont is basically Malkovich's Dracula. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Um, I, w- I think I was two whiskeys deep when I said that, so I don't remember, quite remember why. But I think it's, I think it's just the... There are certain points in that movie where it just feels very gothic and Peter Capaldi's like his uh, he's like his footman and it feels kind of like a Renfield I feel like we, we compare everyone to a Renfield. Uh, any, any like villain henchman <laughs> relationship is a, is a Ren, is like a Dracula Renfield. Yeah. Fight me on it. I don't care. Um, he is I, kind of he's getting kind of Malkovich's I, I hate to use the term but scraps. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Oh no, this one's working class. You can have her. Yeah, um, this yeah. movie's gross, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, no, it's just the black hair and the like, really thin kind of red lips, and just all the you know the 18th century setting, decadent, gothic. Yeah, yeah. there's one part, part point where Malkovich is writing a letter to uh, someone, but he's using a naked woman's body as a desk. And it's there's a storm blowing outside, and I was like, "Oh, this is like something Gary Oldman's Dracula would do." Mm, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I read online that the casting of Malkovich in the part divided critics, with some wondering if a more conventionally charming actor would have been better in the role. And I, I totally disagree. I kept, when I was watching the movie, I kept thinking about this quote that's in Macbeth, where I think Lady Macbeth says to Macbeth, uh, look the innocent flower, but be the serpent underneath it. Mm. And I think what's impressive about Malkovich's performance is that he emphasizes less the charming and seductive side of his character, but more the snake-like mm. and at times monstrous and, and psychopathic side of him. <laughs> and I think a lot of the tension of his scenes is the fact that we know him to be this untrustworthy, scheming man, mm. but you know, Uma Thurman or Pfeiffer's characters don't. And when he makes his attempt to seduce him, it feels less romantic and more like Dracula putting his victims in a trance. Because yeah. we, we get why the women would believe him because he sounds authentic and believable. But there's something a tad knowing and a little hollow in Malkovich's delivery, which makes you as a viewer never forget, like, this is a bad dude. Yeah. <laughs> and because he is, because he, he sexually assaults Uma Thurman's character mm. and cooks up the scheme with Glenn Close to gaslight her into thinking it's normal and to let him have sex with her again. Mm. You know, and that's a part of the movie which I think isn't quite given enough time to let the horror of that sink in. Yeah. It's, it sort of brushes it aside in a way that might bump but more modern yeah, it's viewers. it's like literally the next morning Glenn Close is like, it's fine. Yeah, don't Do worry it about again. it. Yeah, and times have changed since the 80s. But, but I feel like it would be a lot more problematic if Malkovich was a more conventional, lovable rogue who we're rooting for. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think what's smart about Malkovich's performance is that he navigates that tricky line to make the audience not like him or root for him, but be very compelled by him. Mm. And even more impressive in that respect is that, you know, when when we are meant to suddenly em- sympathize with him at the end, you know, when he's realized all his mistakes he's made and the errors of his ways, but it's too late. And Malkovich has the tears in his eyes. Mm. He isn't bawling, you know, like we, as we've previously established, mm. all good on character every, actors do. every other... <laughs> Um, episode of this, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, great actors don't cry. You really come up with a new man. Yeah, true. It somehow feels tragic and kind of redemptive. It's strange. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's really good. For most of the film, he plays like uh, the Viscount as if he's mo- as if this man thinks himself more than human, and he, he doesn't he doesn't acknowledge anyone as his equal, not even like his rival uh, Isabel, kind of closest character. Yeah, it's just so hard to believe that Malkovich has played so few evil French nobles whose view of life and love are changed by a young ingenue who's seduced, but there you go. 
And now we have, there's one at least. There's one at <laughs> least, yeah, yeah. And that's all we really need. Is it okay if I move on to The Shattering Sky? Go for it, yeah. So this was uh, Bernardo Bertolucci, who made movies like The Conformist and uh, Last Tango in Paris. It was sort of his blank check project after winning nine Oscars for The Last Emperor. And it, it's based on a novel that's ranked among the best of the 20th century. However, the movie was a flop on release and really divided critics. Um, set in the 1940s, an artsy American couple, played by Deborah Winger and John Malkovich, journeyed to North Africa in the hopes of rekindling their marriage. But they soon fall prey to dangers that surround them. We're probably the first tourists they've had since the war. Tunner, we're not tourists, we're travelers. Oh. What's the difference? A tourist is someone who thinks about going home the moment they arrive, Tunner. Whereas a traveler might not come back at all. You mean I'm a tourist? Yes, Tunner. And I'm half and half. Uh, while I haven't read the novel on which The Sheltering Sky is based, uh, I think reading reviews of the film from those who had read the book and reading descriptions of the book, it seems to me that The Sheltering Sky is a good case study in the problems of adapting a novel, specifically one where the main narrative interest is what's going on with the characters internally. Because like in principle, Bertolucci does everything right. Like The Sheltering Sky feels incredibly cinematic. While the film wasn't shot in the exact locations um, in the book or that are described in the movie, like they went to Morocco, Niger and Tangier and filmed in the desert. And the movie is lens by Vittorio Storaro, who shot Apocalypse Now. And it feels like very epic and fast. Like This is part where Malkovich and Winger are just walking along this um, cemetery mm. and the camera just slowly does like a 180 pan and it's just like Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> like the, it's just incredible scenery all around them. Also, um, Yuichi Sakamoto did the soundtrack, which also feels like equally just huge. And, you know, I think for just for those elements and the performances, like people should check out the movie. But something in it that feels a little missing mm. in that, like there's this sort of dual narrative or dual theme going on where the movie's showing us on one level this portrait of a crumpling marriage while also trying to make this point about tourists going to an exotic place and thinking like, I'm from the West, I'll be fine, I'll discover myself here and not being very careful and ignoring warning signs and... Uh, the whole movie has this very foreboding atmosphere. There's a lot of talk of dreams and omens. And, you know, Timothy Spall plays this oddball they meet in their travels who doesn't seem on the level. And, you know, right from the jump, you, you know it's going to end in tragedy. There's this bit in the movie where so at the beginning where someone calls the lead characters tourists and they correct them and say, we're travelers. Mm. You know, we're better than tourists. We, we, we roam the world or whatever. And I think the whole movie seems to be proving, no, no, they're tourists. Yeah. <laughs> but while the tourist critique, I think, works, uh, the movie mostly feels quite surface level when it comes to the characters. We never get a sense of what makes these people who they are, what makes them tick, why their relationship is failing, you know, what they saw in each other originally. And I don't think it's the fault of the actors because Malkovich is reliably excellent playing this composer who fancies himself as a well-traveled intellectual like he's the one who's dragged his wife on this trip who seems mostly there to please him she'd rather spend her days just hanging out in the hotel rooms and you know Malkovich plays Port as someone who seems a bit haunted and fed up with life like the type of person who can always drop a bon mot but also has this kind of mean streak and be quite pissy to people you know he has this high opinion of himself and doesn't suffer fools but while the actor is good and is really trying to fill any blank spots his character might have in the script I just think there's too much information about he and Deborah Winger's characters left unsaid that would have been explained through prose in a novel. Yeah. To the point that it's a little distracting. Like sometimes you're confused about certain details and why characters do certain things. Mm. 
you know, key example, early on, Malkovich's port asks Kit if she will go out for a walk with him. And she says no, and he then tries to make a move on her, and she rebuffs him, and he just slams the door, storms off. And you're like, yeah, I could get that. But then a pimp comes up to him on the street and is like, I have the girl for you, come on. And he just follows him without needing much convincing and has sex with her. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. I'm, I'm curious to see how this will impact him and Kit's relationship. Um, who also has an affair over the course of the movie with a friend of Port's who he's jealous of. So you have like, seems like there's going to, is reaching towards some sort of conclusion with that. But it, it never, both of those things never really come up again. And there's this scene I quite like in the movie, which I think is the most actorly scene where Malkovich and Winger's characters cycle to this place with amazing views of the desert. And on the way there, they're the loosest they've been with each other throughout the whole movie. And they're joking and laughing around with each other. And when they get to the cliff's edge, Malkovich talks about traveling and how much it means to him. And they start to kiss and have sex. But somehow it winds up turning into a heart to heart about their problems and the mood is killed and... For a second, you know, felt like they were overcoming their issues, going back to their old selves, because reality crept in and they stopped having sex. And during the scene, Malkovich says, you know, for me, loving means loving you. And he quietly sobs on her stomach. And it feels very earnest in the moment. But as a viewer, you can't help but think, like, you just slept with a prostitute yeah. days ago, which, again, like, never comes a big factor in the plot. And parts of the film story just feel a little thin, a little incomplete, like we're missing fragments of information which i imagine are better fleshed out over the course of a 300 page novel mm. and I, I think roger ebert who's a little harsher on the movie than i am uh, in his review sums up my issues pretty well like he's his review says the book is so complete so deep and so self-contained that it shuts the movie out bertolucci shows us the outsides and the surfaces and a person seeing this movie without having read the book might ask what it's about Ooh. but that said like if you were looking for jaw-dropping imagery thick atmosphere and intense, you know, strong performances. Uh, Sheltering Sky is worth a look. And, you know, Makovic is good to the extent that, you know, slight spoilers with this, like he's only in the movie for the first two thirds. And when he left, no shade to Deborah Ringer, who's great too, love mm. Deborah Ringer. Uh, my interest did wane slightly in its more sort of dreamlike, surreal final act. And this is all a long movie too. It's 140 minutes. And I'm not sure it totally earns that length, despite just having some great moments and mm. scenes. But an, an interesting movie for sure. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you want to chat Empire of the Soul? Sure. Based on a J.G. <coughs> Ballard novel? Yeah, yeah. Semi-autobiographical, apparently. Huh? Uh, John Malkovich plays Basie, an American expatriate smuggler living in Shanghai during the Japanese invasion. He and his put-upon sidekick, Frank, who's played by Joey Pantoliano, rescue British upper-middle-class schoolboy Jim Graham, played by a very young Christian Bale, who has been separated from his parents. The three are eventually interned by the Japanese, where they plot to escape. So the movie is actually the story of Jim Graham and his journey from being a British upper-middle-class upper schoolboy in the Shanghai International Settlement during the Japanese invasion of China before World War II. And then after he's interned with um, Frank and Basie and a lot of other British expatriates, plot moves forward to 1945, where Japan are losing the war, there's not enough food in the camp, and Jim and Basie are plotting to escape, but we're not so trustworthy of Basie and whether he'll actually escape with Jim. What I found under my truck. I'm sorry already. Well, come on in, boy. I don't know whether he's hungry or crazy. You look like you need to lie down. My father has a customer at Putang. He'll be ingratiated to you. Ingratiated? That's a fine word. He once gave a taxi driver. In a minute, your tongue's running away. Now that is a well-kept set of teeth. Someone has paid a lot of bills for that sweet little mouth. Frank, you know, you'd be surprised how some people neglect their kids' teeth.
he's instantly untrustworthy because he's introduced and you you never see you don't see his face for the first minute maybe two minutes of screen time he's you just see like from like his the middle of his torso down as he's like cooking some rice on a this abandoned cargo ship that he and Frank live in and um as um the film goes on we you kind of learn just through instinct rather than anything being explained to you that this is a guy that feels really hard done by and is kind of unwilling or unable to really open himself up to anyone and it's he instead uses people like Frank and Jin until they're no longer useful to him like even after he's beaten by the Japanese and essentially nursed back to health by Jim and Jim sets traps for him and does run, supply runs for him in the camp between the American enclave and the British side of the camp and the hospital and the, even the Japanese captors he can't find it in him to bring Jim along with him when he when the Americans bomb the camp and the a lot of the Americans in the camp escape and it's a film that kind of finds the middle ground between something like Life is Beautiful or um, and Come and See, one of the, you know one of those really fucking grim yeah. Soviet movies, um, in that it depicts kind of the nasty reality of war, but also people making the best of a bad situation. It has all these really like beautiful dreamlike situations, like the bit where the their British prisoners are on a forced march by the Japanese because they've abandoned the camp because the Americans have blown it to smithereens, and they end up in a foot an abandoned football stadium that's just full of all the riches and ornaments that were in the mansions in the Shanghai International Settlement and Jim finds like his parents uh, it's not a Rolls Royce it's a Packard and there's crystal chandeliers and there's grand pianos and then as he's uh, he spends a couple I think a couple of days there watching essentially people he knew in the camp die of disease and as he looks up at the sky as uh, his an older woman he was friends with dies he sees like flashes of light passing over the sky and he thinks it's like her soul going up to heaven and then later on it's like oh no it was the bomb being dropped on Nagasaki it was after shocks of that and I think that's a that's a really good representation of like just innocence being crushed under like a jackboot or something yeah yeah it's just that sounds good yeah it's just a childlike fantasy and like nope 10,000 people dead and it's a great movie of just like kind of stuff repeating on itself because there's a bit at the start where Jim is separated from his parents at the start of the movie by like a, cr- a crush a stampede essentially so he goes back to his house and eats the remaining food there and you know does does like some home alone shit like he cycles um, his bike in the in the house around the kitchen table and then towards the end of the film he makes his way back towards the camp he was in and starts cycling his bike through the hospital and then there's this repeated joke that the Americans uh, including a very young Ben Stiller tell to Jim it's like hey kid want a Hershey bar and he's like sure, yeah sure and they're like so do I and then like he, <laughs> that's a great he, Ben Stiller bit <laughs> yeah he, he and Jim ends up repeating that to like the children of the camp and then as um, Jim meets up with Basie at the at the end of the film again um, where Basie is like raiding all the supply canisters the Americans are dropping for people that have escaped camps or like Chinese people who are affected by the famine Basie is driving away in a stolen car um, with the gang of Americans he's formed and he's like hey kid want a Hershey bar and Jim's like yeah and he throws a Hershey bar at him oh, that's and great. catches it yeah. yeah so it's it's that's uh, that's a part of the movie I really liked and I just wanted to highlight that yeah no Spielberg is um, I should watch it because he's the kind of the best at that sort of childlike wonder stuff yeah right? yeah I should yeah. check it out and he's a great war film uh, yeah, maker as well yeah. so those two styles really mash well together and it's this before Schindler's List right yeah, yeah. I think it was like seven years before Schindler's maybe four years before Schindler's List but yeah a good number of years before it as you heard in the intro this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts there's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network here's a taster of one they're only stories 
a new anthology drama podcast that celebrates stories and the writers behind those stories. I go like the hounds of hell are after me. Good to know. Premiering on the 17th of October on the Headstuff Podcast Network. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Their Only Stories is produced by Rides Productions in association with the Headstuff Podcast Network and funded by the Arts Council of Ireland. Yes, you should be proud I Know That Face are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I Know That Face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events and lots more. We here at I Know The Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc. All for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus VAT per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. Can I talk about In The Line Of Fire? Yes, I've actually seen this. Um, I don't remember it all that well. I, I can't believe you didn't watch it. It rocks. It's I, so good. <laughs> I, I have seen this ages ago, and I don't remember that well, but I know there's a bit where John Malkovich saves Clint Eastwood from falling off a building. Yeah. And, and she- that's that's really good, but... Other than that, and and the fact that Clint Eastwood is like, oh, I want to say he's at least sixty in this, maybe older, and he's just pairing himself up with a younger woman again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were neighbors. Yeah, yeah. No, in that scene where John Malkovich saves Clint Eastwood, because Clint Eastwood could shoot John Malkovich in the face, yeah. but then he'd fall off the building because mm. John Malkovich is holding him up, and John Malkovich like wraps his mouth around the gun. Mm. And apparently it was improvised and Clint Eastwood laughed. And th- there's, in the scene, you can see it, it doesn't cut to Clint Eastwood, but you can see John Malkovich is like smiling. <laughs> a gun and it's insane. Like yeah. I was watching it with Charlene and Charlene turned to me and was like, this movie's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's Wolfgang Peterson, isn't it? Wolfgang Peterson, who made yeah. uh, Air Force One. and Get uh, off my plane. A really good director of, I don't know, mi- military or like pay. Uh, Tom Clancy style. Exactly. Movies, yeah. Because yeah. even Das Boot, he made that mm. as well. All like military exercises, all this stuff. He's great. But anyway, basically, John Malkovich plays a mysterious man who calls himself Booth, who concocts a plan to assassinate the US president. He prefers the nickname Booth to Oswald because the real Booth had flair and panache, as he says. That's true. The leap to the stage after he shot Lincoln, he explains. Uh, <laughs> yeah, what he doesn't mention is that Booth also broke his foot jumping into the, onto the stage. True. Um, <laughs> uh, in preparing the hit, he enters into a cat and mouse game with a Secret Service agent played by Clint Eastwood. But this isn't any Secret Service agent. Mm. He's the sole active duty Secret Service agent still remaining from the detail that guarded John F. Kennedy in oh, Dallas, yeah. Texas at the time of his assassination. Back to me now, yeah. Why is it everyone who ever knew you said that you're a sick son of a bitch? Your colleagues, your wife. Uh, what does your wife say about you, Frank? Oh, we're not talking about me. Frank, you of all people, I want you to understand because we both used to think that this country was a very special place. You don't know what I used to Oh, think. but you know about me? Do you have any idea what I've done for God and country? Some pretty fucking horrible things. I don't even remember who I was before they sunk their claws into me. That made you into a real monster, That's right? That's right. 
And now they want to destroy me because we can't have monsters roaming the quiet countryside now, can we? What do you see when you're in the dark and the demons come? I see you, Frank. I see you standing over the grave of another dead president. Yeah, we're later going to talk Con Air also, which also centers on an American hero betrayed by his country who's forced to defend it once again against an intelligent, ruthless, violent villain with a incredibly complex scheme, mm. Pepe John Malkovich. And a good name. And a great name. <laughs> so they're interesting to compare. But um, yeah, I think this one's a better one for multiple reasons. For one thing, In the Line of Fire is tapping into all this rich US history, which makes it stand out from sort of similar glossy Hollywood thrillers. Because this added heft to Clint Eastwood's quest for redemption because the Kennedy assassination to this day is still a source of massive fascination for people and as well as that I think it's just Malkovich's performance and how the characters present it that makes In the Line of Fire a classic I'd argue in the Hollywood action thriller dad movie mm. subgenre <laughs> because the movie really builds him as this mysterious unpredictable but dangerous threat we're introduced to him only through phone calls with Clint's character and you know we see like him in silhouette and again like Malkovich is careful soft yet slightly mocking voice making these sort of insinuating threats feel so palpable and unique and is a wonderful counter to Eastwood's sort of take no shit say yeah. it as I see it kind of attitude like there's a bit towards the end of the movie where they have a phone call and Malkovich is like I have a rendezvous with death and so does the president and so do you Frank if you get too close to me and Clint Eastwood's like you have a rendezvous with my ass motherfucker <laughs> <laughs> perfect and then also the movie establishes Malkovich as being this master of disguise which is insane like Eastwood has a secret service pilot played by Dylan McDermott who mm. interviewed people who lived in the building where Malkovich's character lived and he's like yeah what's weird is that the tenants noticed him but never really saw him statements vary he was between 5'8 and 6'2 between 165 and 180 pounds between 28 and 45 and later when we see Malkovich's booth fully for the first time, he just looks like Malkovich in a, a nice hairpiece. And you're mm. like, oh, that's a bit disappointing, a bit underwhelming. Mm. But then he has this whole bit where he impersonates someone in a, a bank, but he feels his covers bone and follows the cashier home and kills her and her roommate who happened to walk in that bit, at the yeah. moment, which is really scary because he gets the cashier to let him into her house just by being charming before killing her. Mm. And it, it's actually believable. And you're like, that could happen to anyone or you could be the roommate who just walked in, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. But then the next time you see Malkovich, the first time he and East would come sort of face to face, he's in a totally different costume. He's got like long hair and a gold tooth. He looks like Killer Bob from Twin Peaks. <laughs> and just the conceit of the character, like adopting all these different disguises is, is a great vehicle for Malkovich to do a lot of physical acting. And also unique is that the character out of disguise is not ripped and lean. Like there's a part in the movie where he looks in the mirror towards the end and he's, we see that he's balding and he like slaps his belly and he has like a normal physique, mm. which also adds a lot of realism and something fresh because usually it's all these, I don't know, really beefed up, yeah, you know, like yeah. I'm a killing machine. You know what I mean? It's just like an ordinary dude you can meet on the street. I must break you. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's a real mystery to who Booth is and how he has the skills to do all these things with such ease and, you know, keep a calm head because he never loses his cool in any of the conversations with Clint Eastwood up to a point. And um, even once it's revealed, there's still some mystery to his backstory because it's uncovered he was an assassin for the CIA, but the CIA in the movie, you know, say that Malkovich snapped upon returning to private life. 
whereas Malkovich says the CIA tried to take him out when he served his purpose. Um, it's a great scene. It's over the phone with Eastwood, and it's the first time we see you know Malkovich really lose his cool because mm. he's been all sort of soft spoken like pursed lips before. Mm. Uh, he starts shouting, his voice is shaking, and it, it makes the hair in the back of your neck stand up because. It's left kind of ambiguous what the truth is because, you know, when Malkovich screams like, I used to think this country was a special place or I don't even remember who I was before they got their claws into me. You believe him and you, you kind of, you know, sympathize with him for a little bit in that he was told to do all these monstrous things for the good of America and then the country turned on him because he did it. And because, as he says, we can't have monsters roaming the quiet countryside now, can we? Mm. Uh, there's just a strange tragedy tragedy to the character too. And there's, there's multiple times he could kill Clint Eastwood's character, as we said, but he doesn't because he, he loves the thrill of the game and he also respects him. There's this bit where he pithily says, like, the irony's so thick, you could choke on it. The same government that trained me to kill, trained you to protect. Now you want to kill me? Well, up on the roof, I protected you. And while Ooh. Eastwood and Malkovich's characters are totally different, there is something in the way Malkovich delivers these lines and kind of mythologizing their game, you know, in air quotes, they're going to write books about us, he says mm. at one point, that when they actually come face to face for the like an extended time in the finale, it genuinely feels elemental, you know, and mm. written in the stars. And, you know, Malkovich has said, as we mentioned at the beginning, he doesn't like method acting, it's not his thing. But on In the Line of Fire, according to IMDb, he lived in total seclusion for over a month prior to production to connect with his character's sense of isolation. He didn't leave his house and wouldn't talk on the phone. He would also, you know, rarely watch a television. You know, if he did, it was just news programs. And while you don't have to go method for everything, are you listening, Jared Leto? <laughs> um, I, think, I hope he is. I think in the in this case, like it aided the performance because there's something a little off, a little rehearsed about Malkovich's delivery when he's trying to appear innocuous in the movie. You know, he's trying a little too hard to be casual because he's he's forgotten how to do it when he's like interacting with that cashier at the beginning, mm. for example. And uh, he was rightly awarded an Oscar nomination for his work and was the sole person in, in the line of fire to receive one, which is kind of rare for a kind of pulpy thriller yeah to, that's true to get like yeah. oscar cred so it it's just a testament to how great he is in the movie yeah absolutely yeah um do you want to go on to conair sure yeah john malkovich plays cyrus the virus grissom a professional criminal mastermind aboard the jailbird a prison transport plane bound for a life sentence in a supermax facility cyrus and several others hijack the plane in an escape attempt only parolee and ex-us army ranger cameron poe played by a very southern nicholas cage can stop them Good, then I'll talk to you. Here are the rules. First I ask a question, then you ask a question. Okay, what's your question? In Carson City, your bulls were on to us. How? One of the guards! One of the guards? One of the guards faked a heart attack and we had to remove his restraints. All right? I see, and what's your question? Where are you going with my plane, Cyrus? We're going to Disneyland. You're lying, Cyrus. So are you, Vince. Oh, nothing makes me sadder than the agent lost his bladder in the airplane. Uh, yeah, this is an action movie. I think it's probably better known for its rogues gallery than it is for its action. It's a movie that I can show to people and say that at one slim point in history, Colin Meany of <laughs> Dublin played the coke-snorting, Porsche-driving asshole cop in a Hollywood blockbuster. The rogues gallery I mentioned, a literal murderer's row of <laughs> mass murderer William Billy Bedlam Bedford, played by Nick Chinland, serial rapist Johnny 23, played by Danny Trejo, 
Black Gorilla member Nathan Diamond Dog Jones, played by Ving Rames. Ramon Sally Can't Dance Martinez, played by <laughs> Renoli Santiago. Pilot Earl Swamp Thing Williams and serial killer Garland and the Marietta Mangler Green, <laughs> played by Steve Buscemi. And nearly all the other villains' crimes, the major ones, are described in great detail. Cyrus's aren't. That's the important part, I think. Mm. Yeah. Okay. It's like James Bond managed to arrest one of his supervillain enemies and put them in prison instead of dropping them to a shark pit or whatever. And I, I don't know, I presume Cyrus spent his time napalming convents or pumping Zyklon B into orphanages or probably beat the shit out of Nelson, Nelson Mandela just for kicks as well you know he, he, the point being that this guy is so evil we have to we have to guess at what he did rather than have it explained to us in like some kind of sonorous monologue delivered by the guard Steve Easton at the you know at the start of the movie he's like Cyrus the virus uh, professional criminal but we don't get any more information <laughs> yeah. other than that like in fairness, he does have the one go- good point where he turns to Danny Trejo's uh, serial rapist and says, I despise rapists. For me, you're somewhere between a cockroach and that white stuff that accumulates at the corner of your mouth when you're really thirsty. And you're like, oh, wow. All time put down. Yeah, yeah. And then on the other end of the scale, on the really cheesy action movie end of the scale, Nicolas Cage's character, is he's been paroled. He's on his way home to his wife and child who he's never met. And the only present he could afford for his daughter is this bunny rabbit. Yeah. Um, you know, put the bunny back in the box. That's one another great line from this movie. I'm a huge fan of this movie. I think there's always something to be new to be discovered whenever you watch it. But Malkovich, Mal- Cyrus the Virus later f- figures this out and uh, grabs the bunny and puts a gun to it and make a move and the bunny gets it. <laughs> uh. um. I hate to say it, I'm a little, I'm a bit down on this movie. Really? Is have you have you watched this more than once, or have you only? No, seen I've once? only seen it. That's just actually the first time I watched it, oh, which is okay. weird. It just it was a weird blind spot mm. for me. I watched it the night after in the line of fire, and I kind of felt like what Malkovich was doing was a bit sort of diet in the line of fire. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, you could be right. I mean, I don't remember the line in the line of fire that well. Um, it was. I think we. I started, yeah. started watching but it at like not, midnight. Not to like. It's not Malkovich's fault. I, I think Cyrus is still a really fun villain because mm. like he brings heft. You know, you can really feel him trying to make the character feel alive. There's the bit where the guy who betrayed him is like, he's about to kill him. He's like, "Don't sigh," and he's like, "Sayonara," <laughs> and kills him. Or the, the the bit where he's like, "Welcome to Con Air," when he, they take over the plane. Mm. Or I think he says in like a squeaky voice to the warden, "Oh stewardess, oh stewardess, what's the in-flight movie today?" There's some great lines. I just, and it's cool that they don't reveal his backstory, but I do think he's a bit let down by a pretty busy script with way too many characters. I, yeah, that's 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 true. Yeah, and there's a large stretch where he's not really in it that much, where they go to the desert. Yeah, where everyone's just kind of doing off doing side quests. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just think the movie. It's very over the top from the jump. The minute Cage has that hair in prison and he's doing that voice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, when he steps off the bus. Ooh. Yeah, <laughs> but. It's a movie that's not very interested in subtlety, which is fine, but I I think there's not a lot to Cyrus the Virus aside from the great name. I think that especially when you compare him to In the Line of Fire when he's when he's like he's a master of disguise, he was has this tragic backstory, he has this thing where it's Cyrus the Virus is just like I'm bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I get I get what you mean. I get what you mean. Like I ju- literally just had to invent all that shit that I said there <laughs> yeah, yeah. to, you know, big him up, I guess. But there is a gr- one a really good nice detail I like when I think it's the one part where he feels sort of human and real, like, realistic is the bit where Cameron, Nicolas Cage's character, says, many hands make light work. My daddy taught me that. And Cyrus goes, you know what my daddy taught me? Cameron's like, what? He's like, nothing. <laughs> kind of a good line. And you're like, yeah. oh, I, I kind of have a read on this guy yeah, now. Yeah. But it's fleeting. And I, I heard that Malkovich had an issue with the movie in that he was unhappy during the production because the script was constantly being rewritten. Yeah. Like every day, he says. And he had no idea how his character was going to turn out. And I think... 
the character feels a little inconsistent because of that. Yeah. A little. Yeah. Whereas when Eastwood and Malkovich have their big like fight at the end of In the Line of Fire, it feels written in the stars where it, with Cage, it feels a little perfunctory. Yeah. That's also, fair, yeah. I think Cage is a little miscast in Connor. Is that a crazy thing to say? Uh, I mean, you could probably make that argument about every movie Nicolas Cage is in. It's, but you could also make the argument that he's perfectly cast in every movie he's in. That's true. I think what makes me disregard that thought is the fact that he's so over the top that it mm. kind of becomes a Cage before. Like, it's kind of ironic. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's He's never, like, really yelling in that movie. Like, I, most, of, most of his dialogue is either, you know delivered in a very low register whisper or like bellowed from the top of his lungs and he's always just uh, like this whispery southern ASMR style. <laughs> yeah. That's why because it, it's kind of wild when you think of it that way. It's just that in The Rock I love the cage is sort of like I'm an oddball weird scientist and I'm, I'm, you've never seen a character quite like this yeah, lead a mainstream yeah. movie and that's very fun and I think in Face Off he's really fun when he's the villain. Mm. I think he's really good not presented as sort of the straight hero. Yeah. And I think in Con Air, they present him as like, he is the most hero of anyone ever. Yeah, yeah. And he has the southern accent yeah. <laughs> and, and the long hair. And you're like, I don't buy Nicolas Cage at that. Uh-huh. A little bit. Yeah. But um, it was a fun movie, though. I enjoyed it. I think it. it's fun, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I thought Bashami was great. That scene in the swimming pool with the little girl kind is Kind of insane. terrifying. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's really, it's a, why I believe the movie was being written, written every day because like... It kind of comes out of nowhere. Yeah, but. it comes out of nowhere. And you're like, this is fucking like Hannibal Lecter type shit. Yeah, yeah, no, but and it's it's filled with you know great actors. You mm. you mentioned most of them there, and uh, even the, the the female prison guard on the Conair, Rachel T- mm. uh, Tigotten, she's a great actress too. Yeah. Yeah. I think it just I think it has a great kind of energy to it. You know, it's it's not it's not making any any claims. There's no ceiling it's trying to reach for. It knows what it is, um, and it's it's coming for you right down the barrel. It, it does have a crazy pace where I'm like, it starts at like, mm. and you're like, it can't keep up this energy up, and it sort of does, which yeah. is kind of amazing. I think for me, I either wanted to be a little more crazy or a little more serious. Yeah, that's I was fair. Like, yeah, it's not yeah. like up, it's not as crazy as like Face Off, but it's not as serious as in the Line of Fire. It's sort of mm. in between, yeah, but yeah. still good though. Yeah. Can I talk about a complete change of topic? Can I talk about Portrait of a Lady? Go for it, yeah. Yeah. I thought you'd enjoy this just to kick off the Portrait of a Lady conversation. I looked up Letterboxd, the first review, <laughs> the highest ranked review. She didn't even have the decency to be on fire. <laughs> <laughs> that is very good. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is an adaptation of Henry James's 1881 novel, The Same Name, um, The Great Jane Campion directs. Nicole Kidman plays Isabel, an American girl who rejects multiple men's proposals, including from characters played by Viggo Mortensen and Richard E. Grant. This movie's cast is stacked, by the way. Uh, Barbara Hershey, Shelley Duvall, Martin Donovan, again, a young Christian Bale, too. Mm -hmm. She rejects their proposals because she wants to experience life first before settling down. However, traveling in Italy, after inheriting a large fortune, she falls for a museum owner played by John Malkovich, who is only after her money, turning her life into a nightmare. I don't know whether I'd better not wait until then for something I want to say to you. I can't advise you without knowing what it is. But I'm hard when I'm tired. I don't believe that. You're angry sometimes, that I can believe, but I'm sure you're never hard. Not even when I lose my temper? You don't lose your temper, you find it. And that must be beautiful. Only I could find it now. Mm. I'm not afraid. This 
movie's kind of under discussed. Um, it got middling reviews when it came out. I really love it. Uh, I've seen it twice. As I said before, I have a bit of an aversion to, to adaptations of Victorian novels that look at the past with rose tinted glasses and sort of reduce it to dance balls mm. and awesome clothes. <laughs> you know, uh, here though, I think Campion really is focused on how terrible it was for women in the past. Like it's a very anti heritage movie. The movie begins with this really bewitching little sequence it kind of feels like the beguiled or something mm. where contemporary Australian women talk about desire and romance there's a montage of them like dancing in a field over the film's like haunting dark fairy tale score and it's in black and white and looks beautiful but from there it flashes back in time to Kim and Isabel who sort of lacks the freedom they have I think mm. there's a, a real juxtaposition between those two things I think that lack of opportunity for women is reflected in the way the movie looks like the film has this very gloomy gothic feel a lot of shadows and dim colors and there's a it's also a lot of dutch angles as establishing shots yeah and i feel like they're deployed to show how just how strange life was in the past like it, it just immediately sets you on like a, a strange like Ooh, yeah well, what's up with the shot yeah. <laughs> which is cool and like on malkovich's gilbert it's another snake-like turn from him after dangerous liaisons but here he's after money rather than sex so at least after the initial seduction stage he's a lot more outwardly cold and crueler than Valmont in Dangerous yeah. Seasons ever was. Like he hits Isabel, and like there's a one point where they have an argument that she goes to walk away, and he like trips her up. Ooh, like he's really nasty. But I think a scene that encapsulates both why Campion and Malkovich are great and what they do is um, the scene in which Malkovich seduces Isabel because Isabel is in like this catacomb-like place in a museum alone and Malkovich enters from what looks like a cave and he's like spinning a parasol you know one of those umbrellas mm. that has this like pattern on it and it it's, looks like he's hypnotizing her essentially and he's like I know you're leaving Florence but I have something to tell you I'm not sure to tell you now or when you get back and she's like well I'm hard when I'm tired and he's like you're never hard and she says not even when I lose my temper and he's like you don't lose your temper you find it and that must be beautiful like has this really cracking dialogue and that's the part where I jump on him uh, Frankly, uh, yeah. someone said that to me. <laughs> but, um, you know, Kidman has the strength to resist it. And he's, he tells her he loves her. And while he's very seductive in that scene and we get why Kidman would fall for him, we know already he has malicious intent for her because we, we've seen from a previous scene not involving her, he's concocting this plan. Mm -hmm. And when it happens, like, Campion deploys, like, scary music and the camera, like, swings around and we hear Malkovich whisper again, I love you, in a really, like, intense way. And the way the scene is blocked, he's like circling her like a shark. And I love that Campion and Malkovich portray that scene where Isabel unknowingly kind of throws away her dreams. It's not like a courtship scene. It's like a horror scene. Yeah, yeah. It's really smart. And yeah. I recommend people just check out the movie for that scene because it's great. Uh, Henry James, he's a, he wrote a lot of ghost stories. He wrote so. Turn of the Screw. Yeah. yeah. There's also, if you're interested in Henry James, there's a great novel by Come to Being where he writes from the perspective of Henry James. It's great. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you want to talk being John Malkovich before sure, we wrap up? Sure, yeah. John Malkovich plays John Malkovich, a famous Hollywood actor well known for his prominent work on stage and screen. A portal into his mind is discovered by file clerk and puppeteer Craig Schwartz, played by John Cusick, on floor seven and a half of the Martin Flemmer building. Craig is soon left bereft after his wife Lottie, played by Cameron Diaz, and co-worker Maxine, played by Catherine Kinnear, fall in love through Malkovich, leading Craig to take drastic measures by controlling Malkovich indefinitely. Malkovich. Malkovich, Malkovich. Malkovich, 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 Malkovich. Malkovich! Malkovich. Malkovich. 
This is easily one of the top two funniest movies Malkovich has starred in. The other being Burn After Reading. The advantage Burn After Reading has is memoir. <laughs> and the, the listen, the fact that his best friend is Charlie Sheen just gets funnier and funnier the more time passes. Like, did you, did you see the quote from him on IMDb where he's like, "I literally love Charlie Sheen." <laughs> <laughs> Good. Yeah, uh, I'm happy that they're friends. Uh, makes that makes it even funnier, yeah. As, especially when you see old Charlie Sheen at yes. the end. Who looks nothing like old the old Charlie Sheen of today, 22 years on. And not to mention the fact that when Malkovich, John Malkovich enters his own head and discovers that everyone looks like him and only says Malkovich. <laughs> Malkovich! Yeah, exactly. Malkovich! Yeah. The bit where like, the bit where someone's ordering food and they're like, Malkovich, 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 Malkovich. And the waiter's like, Malkovich. As if they've made like a great decision. <laughs> yeah. And the menu is all just Malkovich. Yeah, and yeah. then the woman who's on the piano. Malkovich, <laughs> Malkovich. Malkovich. Yeah. So funny. Um... And yeah, there are just very few actors uh, that are able to answer the question, what's it like playing yourself? You know? Yeah. And uh, frankly, I'd rather leave it a mystery, though, if Malkovich's view of the script as half intrigued and half horrified by it (laughs) is anything to go by. I'd say he brought plenty of that to the performance. And I don't have too much to say about this because it's been a while since I've watched it. But frankly, I think we've been too long without a Spike Jonze, Charlie Kaufman collaboration. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. What's up with that? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) It feels like Charlie Kaufman felt like he could do it on his own and he can't. Because, (laughs) mean, Um, I feel like Kaufman is very playful, but a little too serious. Mm. And I feel like Spike Jonze is a little serious, but very playful. Yeah. And I think those two, and I also think the same applies for Kaufman and Gondry Mm. as well. Eternal Sunshine is the mine. I think they bring out the best in each other and I'm sad they don't work together anymore. Yeah, I think the playfulness and kind of seriousness really come together in turning like a portal into the actor John Malkovich's mind or our viewpoint on the world just becomes this total nightmare I won't spoil the movie for people that haven't seen it but by the end of the movie if you've like been following it along which I didn't when I first watched it when I was 16 and I didn't like it then I watched it like seven years later and really enjoyed it is that it's a complete nightmare um, for one of the characters by the end of the movie and it's not John Malkovich yeah Um, we wrapped up there yeah We'll talk more about Malkovich, what's coming yeah. up for him in our second... Usually at this point in the episode, we would talk about what's coming up next, yeah. but we'll do it in our, in our second ex- part. I hope you're excited for my screed on Mile 22. Are you going to watch Mile 22? Oh, I've watched Mile 22 already, Stephen. Yeah, I can't remember if I've worked out what I'm going to watch. Yeah. I've never seen the change thing. I've always wanted to see that. Yeah, I think I'm going to hit that one too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Great. Burn After Reading, obviously. Obviously Burn mm-hmm. After Reading. Um, Velvet Buzzsaw? Worth a rewatch? I'm... I think so. Not my maybe. opinion, but I could talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> Rate and review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Emails at I know at gmail.com if you'd like to reach out to the show. Follow us at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to Shani Fernandez for helping out and running our socials. If you love the show, please consider donating five euro a month to us through Headstuff Plus, where you can find special exclusive bonus episodes. We have multiple available now in our Leading Legend series. Brad Pitt, Denzel, Denzel Jodie Foster. Andrew, where can people find more of your work? You can find me at the Headstuff Gaming section where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it. You can find me at the Headstuff Film section and joe.e. See you later soon, folks. Bye-bye. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. 
Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Thank <laughs> you.